Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of a sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. Howdy and thanks for being with us again on Democracy Sausage, which comes from the modest facilities of the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute. And this pod is supported with the great expertise and enthusiasm from the Crawford School of Public Policy and the School of Politics and International Relations, among others here at ANU. Now, have you had your vaccine shot yet? Booked it in, perhaps? Alarming results of a poll last week for the nine newspapers reveals many people feel no urgency to get inoculated and somewhere approaching a third may not even intend to do so. And three in four people like keeping the borders shut, or at least sticking with the timeline that the government has announced, which is around this time or perhaps even a bit later in 2022 for opening the international border. How much of this is reasonable, or more accurately, how reasonable is it to be relaxed about this when the border is closed, community transmission is next to zero, and the government can't even get its messaging straight, let alone run a front-footed public health campaign urging maximum community buy-in? So let's talk about all of this. My guests today are Professor Quentin Grafton, who is an eminent economist at the Crawford School of Public Policy, and among his many other titles, he's the holder of the UNESCO Chair in Water Economics and Transboundary Water Governance. So welcome back to you, Quentin. Very nice to be here. Thank you. And it's a first-time welcome to Professor Air Vice Marshal, retired and former Surgeon General of the ADF, Tracy Smart, who is now the Public Health Lead of the COVID Response at ANU. Tracy, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I might start actually just by uh, getting you to explain what that means, the COVID health lead at or the, the public health lead in COVID response at ANU. Yes, well, um, I retired from the full-time uh, Air Force last year just in time for the pandemic and to lock myself down and, <laughs> and ANU um, threw me a lifeline to come on board and actually do space medicine. 
But um, space medicine. Yes. So, oh, but, I suppose uh, that's what happens when you have an astrophysicist as the vice chancellor. Yeah, could be. <laughs> but um, but instead, they sort of realised that I had certain skills in a broad range of things, including public health. And so uh, I first became involved in the project to bring back international students. And then it, it broadened from there. So what I do now is I uh, basically answer questions for people. I make sure our policy settings are right in terms of how we operate the university in the pandemic, um, set the guidelines and and still work on the international student piece as well um, as best we can. Yeah. So does that mean you're involved in those issues around, uh, you know, how the campus functions and, and, and the planning for getting students back here in significant numbers, particularly international students, obviously? That's right. Yeah. It's, it's looking at the, the settings, the risk that's around at the moment and make sure we've got our settings right. Um, for instance, how many people should we have in a classroom? Um, you know, what are we, what messaging are we going to put out about keeping COVID safe? A lot's changed from last year about what, we, in terms of what we know about COVID. Um, but some of the messaging hasn't and some of the, the rules hadn't. Mm. So we look at how we can sort of have a, a better balance between understanding risk, um, you know, mitigating risk, but also, you know, having business as usual as much as possible or as close to that as possible. As a former Surgeon General of the ADF, uh, you would have thought about uh, some of these big public health questions before and, and contemplated as a professional the, the prospect of a pandemic at some point or some other major sort of health, public health calamity. Has it, what, what have you learned? Has it surprised you the extent? Because you just made an, a really interesting point that, you know, we're learning sort of on the job here. I, I wonder what it's been like uh, as, a, as a medical professional thinking about that, that process of kind of real-time learning, how that affects public policy and how it affects the, the medical profession, delivery of health services. It's been really quite a fascinating experience. Um, I do say sometimes that last year was one of the more interesting in my life because of the problem-solving opportunities and everything else. So I think, yes, we understood that a pandemic was going to happen. We've had pandemic influenza plans in place in the Defence Force, but also in, in Australia for a long time. I used to sit on the AHPPC, the Australian Health Principles Protection Committee, where a lot of these decisions are I made. I knew there was someone who knew what those initiatives <laughs> meant, and I finally met that person. It used to be even longer, so <laughs> at least be grateful for that. But um, So we used to do desktop, um, desktop exercises, etc. So I think we were reasonably well prepared as a country, and I think that's why or a, part, a big part of the success we've had over the last 12 months. So what has surprised me, what surprised me most of all is the toilet paper um, yeah. you know, saga even in all the post-apocalyptic novels I've read, toilet paper is never an issue. Um, but I think on the whole, um, you know, yes, we had to understand about this particular virus, how it behaved, how it was spread and everything else. That's what keeps changing. But in terms of how it's panning out, I, I don't know that there are a lot of surprises. You know, we know that a lot of this is about, um, you know, Public Health 101 is about human behaviour um, and that's been demonstrated time and time again. The biggest surprise, though, I guess, of all is how quickly we got vaccinations or vaccines in place. You know, the yeah, first person yeah, exactly. in November last year from really a, a sort of sort of standing start in, mm. say, February, March, incredible. Um, and, and it really gives a lot of confidence on, you know, the next time because there will be a next time, um, you know, that we've actually got the tools now to be able to create vaccines much more quickly than we've ever been able to. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, moment in in sort of human uh, the development of knowledge. Uh, I saw the Economist likened it to uh, to 
putting humans on the moon uh, in the very short space of time between when John F. Kennedy, you know, announced that ambition and when it was done, and 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 suggested that the development of of vaccines for for this virus in that short space of time is at least of that kind of level of uh, scientific yeah. progression. It makes sense, and like the moon, of course, even though it looks relatively short, there were a lot of steps along the way to get there. And you know, mRNA technology wasn't invented last year; that was already being looked at and already been um, sort of put in place. So there had been some groundwork done, but this uh, to actually then prove the concept, yeah, amazing. As an economist, Quentin, were you surprised by the, well, you know, the, the toilet paper response, I suppose, <laughs> uh, uh, but also, I you know, whatever else we've learned about kind of human behaviour. I mean, economists think about this a bit in terms of well, the way markets behave, mm, the way, you know, mm. what, what are the motivations for people to do certain things? Do they act out of self-interest? And what what what, what does a collective or, so, or a social interest actually look like? Well, obviously, psychologists know much better than economists about this. But when it comes to behavioural economics, it's not a real surprise. If a lot of people think that a particular item is about to run out, then you're going to stock as much as you can. That's the typical response. Not everybody has that response, but that's a typical response. It's not just true for pandemic and toilet paper. We've seen it for water. We've seen it, you know, mm. before hurricanes arrive. I mean, it's a it's a fairly typical thing. The issue is, is why toilet paper and not some other items, for example, bottled water, whatever that might be. So, so yes, it's not a, it's not a big surprise. Mm. The issue, of course, in a pandemic uh, that we're experiencing, and of course, it's not over yet, just as everyone needs to be reminded of yeah. that, is that we do need to work through this in a collective way. If everybody acts in their own self-interest without thinking about the community interest, we aren't going to end up in a good place. So that means uh, we need to protect the more vulnerable people in our society. We also need to protect the people in other countries in the world. Not only is that a good thing to do from a moral perspective and an ethical perspective, but it's a good thing to do in the context of our own protection because it's those large populations we're seeing it right now in India, but we're probably going to see it in other countries mm. as well. We've seen it in Brazil and we've seen it in other places. What happens is when you have millions of people who are being infected with COVID, variants can emerge and some of them will end up as variants of concern. I reckon, can I just stop you there? Because I reckon this is a really interesting point that needs to be stressed more often. Uh, you know, I don't think it's as widely understood as we might think, but the point about it being in our personal interest as individuals, but also in our national interest as a, as a country for the rest of the world to be vaccinated and for this virus to be conquered, as it were, uh, is, is an important one. That is that when it is circulating, every time it, every time it replicates in someone, there's a chance for it to mutate. And that is how variants emerge. So while the virus is circulating in a community, uh, it represents a potential future danger to us as well. Absolutely, especially when there's millions of people, as in India at the moment, mm. when millillions of people have uh, have been infected, and you've got millions of opportunities. So like twenty five mm. million, I think, is the is the most recent number. Yeah. Sure. So so that, so that's it, it. Really, is in our own national interest and our security interest, but it's not just an Australian issue. It's true for all countries in mm. the world. And in fact, if you could want to prioritize the number one thing we should be doing collectively. United Nations, WHO, all of that sort of stuff is exactly that, is to vaccinate as many people with safe and effective vaccines as quickly as possible all over the world. 
And obviously, it's going to take time. I mean, this can't happen overnight, uh, just as we didn't uh, you know, get mRNA technology overnight. But that's the sort of goal that we should have, and we should do it as quickly as we possibly can. Just sticking with the sort of behavioural side for a moment, is there a parallel between the you know the great bog roll run that we saw last year and the motivation that we need to sort of spur in people or ginger in people to get the vaccine? That is, is it out of self interest that we need people to get the vaccine, or or, or is there a, a higher moral plane that we can appeal to? The sort of thing that Quentin's just been talking yeah, look, about. Absolutely, I think um, yeah, that early part of the pandemic, everybody was out for themselves, and um, then I think Australians got the fact this the whole um, stay home save lives yeah. really took off. Very simple messaging and. Understanding that you're not doing staying home to protect yourself, you're staying home to protect the community. And I think it tapped into the great Australian way if there's a disaster, natural disaster, bushfire, which we'd just been through, um, then we start thinking of the community as much as ourselves. So I think I think that's been a lot to do with this uh, remarkable compliance that Australians yeah. have shown overall. Um, a lot of friends from, you know, UK go, I'm a, I thought you bunch were a bunch of, you know, convicts and larrikins and mm. uh, you wouldn't want, like to do what you were told, but they were because they understood that simple messaging of the why. Yeah, I, I always thought that was a bit misunderstood. I, I agree with the way you're putting it there. I always thought it was a bit misunderstood and kind of bristled at the suggestion that we were just sort of blindly obedient. We were just doing it because we were told to do it. Australians are sheep or whatever. Mm. I think there was a strong element and remains a strong element of people acting in the national interest, in the community interest, in the collective interest, uh, and also of people being intelligent enough and informed enough to um, listen to the science so that the medical advice that they were getting, and when if you think back to uh, the early months of this, you know, we were absolutely saturated with, and you know, we can all, you know, name them, the sort of people Brendan who- Brendan Murphy and his yeah, PowerPoints, yes. Brendan Murphy, <laughs> but also Norman Swan and yep. all those other people, uh, Jodie McVernon, and, you know, there was there was so many of them- um, who were who became sort of daily features explaining what was known about the virus and how it transmitted and so forth. So there was a rational response to that. It was a shared uh, understanding of the need to, as it were, divide and separate, to to withdraw to our homes uh, and to give the virus no chance of sort of bridging that gap. That wasn't just blind obedience. That was kind of common sense. Yeah, and, and backed up by the politicians at that stage as well, yeah. keeping the message simple, listening to the experts. Yeah. And, and I think that's the problem at the moment with the vaccine is we're not explaining that why to them. There should be simple messaging as in, yeah, you get it for yourself. I mean, someone like me, I'm a chronic asthmatic, so mm-hmm. it's really good to be, feels good to have had my first AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, but it's not just that. It is the community. And that's what countries like New Zealand have really played on with the ad they've produced um, for um, getting vaccinated. Um, but we should be talking about that higher thing. You know, if once we get to that 80, 90% you know, a nirvana of vaccination, then we can look at opening the borders again. We can look mm. at rejoining the world, but we can also, um, you know, if we have, once we've done Australia, then we can put more and more focus into the uh, Pacific Islands where we're intending to support the programs and other places as well. So I think that that, that, uh, that messaging really needs to be to go back to the simplicity of last year, you know, stay home, save lives, get vaccinated, save lives. Yeah. Um, and end the pandemic. 
something simple like that. I'm afraid Quinn? I'm going to disagree with Tracy on one of those items because mm-hmm. it came up in the Four Corners program yeah. this week with ABC. So this is the idea of uh, how many people need to be vaccinated before we can open up the border. Absolutely concur. We want to get as many people vaccinated as possible. But the key point about it is, is what vaccination we're going to, well, vaccine we're going to use. And this gets back to this issue of herd immunity. And I'll come back to it if you want, Mark, but, but it's really important. If we follow the current strategy with AstraZeneca for 50 year olds and plus, Pfizer for everyone else, we will not get herd immunity, even if, even if we have 85% of the population vaccinated. Now, herd immunity is an important goal. And I would argue, and others have as, as well, that that goal should be part of a vaccination strategy. And for to be part of a vaccination strategy, it means that before we open our borders, that we need to have more effective vaccines in our arms. And that includes Pfizer, includes Moderna, and it also appears to include Novavax. So that's the strategy that we need to have. And we need to uh, allow the option for people who are 50 plus, who, by the way, are the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable to, to COVID, to have, give them access to Pfizer. Now, there's a question of timing here. I understand we have lots of AstraZeneca and we don't have very much Pfizer. So in that stopgap measure, we can see that we can use AstraZeneca. But the key point is, and I'm going to come back to this, it's not just about how many people have been vaccinated. It's what they've been vaccinated with that really matters. And I can give you the latest numbers out of the UK, et cetera, et cetera, if the, if the, if the listeners want to get those details. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, really we'll come back to that. So, so, and, and I don't think you're disagreeing with me either. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I actually think we can open the border, start opening the borders well before we get to 80 to 90%. I didn't talk about herd immunity per se. Yes, I'm just saying it. we need to get vaccinated. And there's really good evidence now that actually, um, having two shots of AstraZeneca and a Pfizer uh, actually is even better than two Pfizer's. So, you know, this is all, we're building the plane as we're flying it, really, yeah. in terms of knowledge, I think, and in terms of how, you know, things get to variants. But I think the bottom line is if there's an opportunity to get vaccinated at the moment, you should get vaccinated. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not against that, uh, but but I do want to raise this issue because this is this is from the um, the president of the Australian Medical Association. The quote from him last week is mm-hmm. is worth quoting for for your yeah, listeners. Yeah. Okay, so it goes on for some time, but but here's the point. Um, however, he should also, in reference to Greg Hunt, this is the president of the AMA saying this, however, he should also mention that those who refuse AstraZeneca may now be at the bottom of the queue for Pfizer. Now, if you're over the age of 70 and you decline AstraZeneca, you may be waiting till the end of the year for an alternative. Now, that is a threat. If, if I've ever heard one, that's my interpretation of it. So I don't think that's a particularly helpful let's work and do work together sort of situation. Yes, we need to have people vaccinated. Yes, the only vaccine that in any quantity is AstraZeneca. Yes, I, I accept all of that. But those sorts of threats to people who are 70 plus, who are the most vulnerable to COVID, is not helpful. And it is contrary to the messaging that this government wants to have. And it's contrary to delivering a, a proper vaccination strategy. It's probably contrary to the government's political interests because the people who are 50 plus are the ones who vote overwhelmingly for the coalition. So uh, either way you look at it, it seems to me we need to rethink the strategy in terms of the end game. And the end game is, yes, we must open our borders. I absolutely concur with that. But let's not open the borders until we have as many people who want to be vaccinated with the most effective vaccines possible. And yes, as a stopgap, I don't have an issue with people wanting to get vaccinated with 
uh, with AstraZeneca, but I do have an issue with preventing people wanting to get Pfizer, not being able to get Pfizer as a function of their age. Well, are you saying that you would like to have a much clearer message, among other things, there's a number of things you're saying there, and we're going to take a break in a moment yeah. and we'll come back to it, but can I just be clear on this one thing? Are you saying that even people who are opting for AstraZeneca now should be being told in a quite upfront and unreserved way um, you'll have access to Pfizer as well down the track. Absolutely, they should be told that. And Trace is absolutely uh, right. There's evidence now that uh, if you have one dose AstraZeneca, second dose Pfizer, or if you had two dose AstraZeneca and an updated dose, that you will uh, have uh, a greater probability of not having symptoms. So that seems to be the evidence out there. So we can certainly mix and match these these vaccines, and we certainly need to be having uh, a clear message that if you have AstraZeneca, you can certainly get Pfizer. And we should also have the same message. If you haven't gone for AstraZeneca, you don't go to the end of the queue just because you happen to be 78 years old yeah. and you didn't want to get AstraZeneca. I think I think we need to be clear here that there's a priority in terms of the public health issue. Let's not threaten people. Let's make this... It's not even in our interest to, yeah. to, to have those people wandering <laughs> well, around. Well, this is that. the AMA but president I making think... that statement. I didn't make it up. I that's know, that's no, a no. quote. And yeah. there's also issues, and I will go back to March 15th, an interview, and you mentioned Norman Swan. So Norman Swan had an interview with David Berger on the March 15th. Okay, it's, anyone can listen to it. And David was talking, he's a doctor, by the way, an emergency doctor working in rural and remote Australia. And he was making the point, is saying that if you as a doctor make public statements, it doesn't it's different if you say this to your patients. Mm. Public statements that Pfizer has higher efficacy or higher effectiveness in a population, uh, then that uh, would be considered to be uh, contrary to the Therapeutic Goods Act. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm, I'm not familiar. I'm not a lawyer, but that's a statement of a of a doctor making it in March. So, so let's let's just turn well, the what, heat. Presumably, because it what erodes confidence in the current one or something. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think there's a couple of things here. First of all, you talk about a strategy. There is no strategy at the moment and there needs there might be one but if it's it's not much use unless it's transparent and people actually understand what's going on let's come so back to this this yeah. question is we'll take a quick break and we'll come yeah. back to this because I, I think it's a really interesting point about strategy tracy thank you back in a moment millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, Tracy, before the break, you were just making the point about the absence of a strategy. It seems to me that the, to the extent that there is any sort of, you know, um, logic to a number of elements of the vaccination plan, it's sort of driven by the inadequacy of past actions, the you know, slow acquisition, the piecemeal acquisition of vaccines, 
uh, and the availability of them at the moment. You know, the government's not running advertising. I mean, it is running advertising, but not particularly muscularly running uh, public uh, health campaigns in the way that they're being done in some other places. And the theory is, or the suspicion is, that it's not doing so because if it actually drums up a lot of demand, it'll create a great deal of political negativity because there isn't adequate supply. So definitely um, up to about four weeks ago, supply logistics was definitely the problem. Um, it still is in terms of the ones we have to import. So that's Pfizer. Novavax and um, Moderna obviously are on order, but they haven't even been cleared by TGA yet. Mm-hmm. Part of that with Novavax is actually getting the, the information that's really only just become available, I think, in the last few weeks. So there is a lag there. Um, but of course, and AstraZeneca initially, you know, we had to get up to production. We had to get the clearance processes right. So I think now, though, from what I understand, AstraZeneca is the supplies there. Uh, the demand isn't as high as it could be. But it, it would appear to me we had a strategy. It was, you know, put out there. This is when you'll be getting your vaccine. You could go online and say, your age, this, you can get it. But then the AstraZeneca, then the logistics issues became a problem. PNG became a problem. We haven't given them a lot of doses, but we've given them some. Um, and um, then we had the AstraZeneca scare. Um, you well, know. And you had that 3.8 million doses that were coming from Europe that exactly. didn't so, come. Exactly. So yeah. there's all of these these factors. And a good strategy, though, should actually anticipate a lot of this sort of stuff. None of these are black swan events. No. You know, the new vaccines, you're going to get problems with them. So there should have been backup plans and, you know, pivot and all of this stuff. I don't see a lot of evidence of that. Might be there, but that's not what I'm seeing. I really feel... For instance, when they um, decided they would get onto the un- the over fifties, you know, um, because of the AstraZeneca piece and the recommendations there, they really didn't make that clear that that was going to start on a particular date at the beginning of May. I just, you know, am obsessed with COVID, so I knew mm. and got on and had to navigate my way through a website and eventually find out how to book at Calvary Clinic. Mm. Got on very quickly. I mean, now I see on the ACT website. You know, the front page says, do you want you know, a vaccine? Here's how you do it. So they're, they're getting up to speed. They're also opening more vaccination centres and doing all of this sort of stuff. But it doesn't seem to be, it seems to be doing it as, again, as, as the plane's flying, we're building the aircraft. Yeah. It seems like that's what's happening. And I think that confusion is, is you know, is, par- is part of the problem. You know, and the other point I was going to make to what you were saying before is we always knew that you're just not going to just get two doses of a vaccine and that's going to be it. There are always going to be have to be other vaccinations, you know, like the flu, perhaps more frequently than that. Variants will appear, we'll need to, to, to pivot and place, you know, companies like Moderna are already doing that, pivoting to new variants. So it should always be clear at the moment AstraZeneca is... A, you know, does give you good protection, fantastic protection against, you know, severe disease and hospitalisation, which is very comforting. It doesn't give as good um, protection in terms of getting symptomatic COVID, which, of course, could imply that it could spread. But it still gives pretty good, um, after the second dose, gives pretty good protection. So to me, it should, it should be saying, get your AstraZeneca now. We're going into winter. There is a possibility. There's five cases now in Melbourne today. Um, you know, there's a possibility we're going to get another outbreak. Have that initially, and then, but the, when we've got a plan, as the supply comes in, to be able to give you a third dose or whatever, and maybe even a fourth dose or a fifth dose. But at the moment, AstraZeneca, and I think to quote Norman Swan again, will turn COVID into the common cold. 
And that, to me, is worth having the, you know, the vaccination at the present time. Well, I think Tracy and I are almost in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, uh, AstraZeneca, and I can quote you some numbers here. Yes, is is effective against uh, uh, severe hosp- severe symptoms, hospitalisation, and death. And depending on the, the the studies we're looking at in the UK, it's you know it's eighty percent reduction in fatalities, and it'll be even higher in the context of uh, severe symptoms. The point about though about this is herd immunity. And I'll get back to this point, and that's levels of infectiousness. How much COVID do you have even after you've been vaccinated and even if you don't have symptoms? And so if we want to get herd immunity, we are going to need, and that's where Tracy was coming from, we're going to need those mRNA vaccines. The problem is, is that people are not being told that, okay, that the, mes- yeah. the message is there. But I, I know several people who are very well educated who thought that that's all they're going to get is AstraZeneca but, but, and they but don't need to a- get another vaccination well, after isn't, that. Isn't there a fear, and I'm not saying this is the right logic, but is, isn't the logic of this that they're concerned that if they tell people they're getting the what most of us would say is the superior vaccine, well, it, the it mRNA. Is the, it, it is the superior. So well, that's not, and it, yet, uh, it is a superior. Let's not beat about the horse on that. And there were several cases of um, people who've been vaccinated with Pfizer getting COVID in Singapore recently. Oh, yeah. So no, no vaccine is perfect. Nothing is perfect, but we got the data from the UK. We, in comparison to-, but, to but, but I guess where and, I was going- we have going. it from Israel. So it is a, it is a better vaccine. Mm. But the poor point about it, and this is where Tracy, I think, do agree, and I agree, well, it, yes, we- I'd rather have a Pfizer in my arm, but if I haven't got a Pfizer, is AstraZeneca better than nothing? And yes, it's certainly better than nothing in protecting you against COVID and symptoms to COVID. That is absolutely the case. But aren't they worried that if they tell people, look, yeah, Pfizer's coming down the track, you'll be able to get that, there won't be a problem with getting it, it's availability will be there, that people will hold off and that we exactly. will not get it the sort de- of- It will delay the- yeah. um, We've already, They've already got a problem with sort of drumming yeah, up but, demand but and problem, confidence. The pro- and, I, and, and I worry- but the problems are the facts and not the problems and so the problems well, are the we facts. do need to worry about perceptions, of, though. Well, of course we do. People misperceive risk. But we do know, uh, you know, even in the Australian context, it's one in 85,000 in terms of blood clots. From the European Medicines Agency, they're estimating one in 100,000 for people who are 50 plus, by the way. Mm-hmm. So this is not people who are under the age of 50. Yeah, well, it, does, and, it and sort of quadruples under that, doesn't it? So no, it doesn't, actually. It's about doubles. Doubles. So, huh? so and those, those are updated statistics came after April 8th. After the final, after that determination was mm. made, so yes, there's a risk, and you can't walk away from it. But this gets back to the point: what are you going to do? So, if you take an AstraZeneca, you can have some protection, obviously, from from uh, uh, coronavirus, but also you may be able to protect, and to some extent, you will others uh, from from getting it. So that's that's a positive message. But the the other message that we're getting, and I highlighted it at the beginning, is not a positive message. It's a negative message. It says if you don't choose to get AstraZeneca, if you choose not to get it, uh, then we are going to put you at the back of the queue. So you become yeah. even more exposed. What does that say about a society when people in, who are the president of the AMA making those statements? So, so I think the messaging has to change. I think that's the key point. People shouldn't be threatened. And gets back to the point Tracy was saying. Yes, I think we did very well as a community as a society, I think we did really well. Of course, we we were very much helped by closing our international border. That was the critical factor for us. But we did it because we were in it together. Mm. But once you start to put people in different categories, now vaccination passports is another one. You put started separating people into different categories, threatening people. I don't think that breeds the sort of yeah. behaviour we would like to have. Or but I think what, what, what people are trying to say is: should we build in incentives? Like, uh, let me let me quiz you both about this. Do you think? 
that we, we talked about the the incentives or disincentives around uh, AstraZeneca versus Pfizer and Moderna and whatever comes down the track. Um, there's also uh, questions about um, the the outbreak that you referred to in in the small outbreak that you referred to, Tracy. That's ongoing in Victoria at the moment. Four or five infections there, community transmissions. Uh, will that focus people's minds? That's one question. Would having a uh, a fixed goal for when we open the international borders also drive people more towards getting vaccination if they at the moment the government's saying it's not proposing to do so before the middle of next year does that lead to a sort of an insouciance amongst uh, the the population around this there's that question uh, there's the question of uh, vaccine passports as you say which you could see as a negative, but you could also see as a positive. It basically says, well, here's one of the rewards you get for getting vaccinated is that you have the ability to move. I mean, at the moment, you can move around the country anyway, but I guess they're, they're talking about the possibility of uh, in situations where there's infection. Yeah, and I don't think that link, I do think that's a carrot. You know, mm. the ability to, to go overseas, particularly if you've got well, relatives overseas. Well, if it's going overseas, overseas yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think that's a carrot and I do think that that link needs to be explained and I think the border strategy needs to be um, linked to the vaccine strategy a little bit better than it is at the moment. And, I mean, I, I hear that the AHPPC has been, or the Prime Minister announced that they'll be reviewing border opening. I don't think it's a black and white. It's not a binary sort of mm. situation. They're, it's all about risk. So, you know, for instance, if you've had a vaccine, you travel overseas, you're tested before you, you know, you come back, you're then home quarantined for five days and tested again. The risk then of actually having COVID, bring COVID to the country is pretty low. So that's maybe the a phased approach to opening mm. the border I think we should be looking at. But I, I don't think that that, um, that link has been made because I just don't think the messaging has been any more than you should get a vaccine if you feel like it. You know, maybe yeah. that's a bit cynical, but that's what I'm hearing at the present time. Yeah, and, and look, people don't need to do sophisticated cost-benefit analysis. I've got some sophisticated tables to give you different risks <laughs> in different age groups, okay? We've done some calculations on yeah. this. But people, they just look and say, when was the last person who died of COVID in, in Australia? It was actually in, in Queensland. That was last month. And who who has died from uh, blood clotting? And that takes it to nine hundred and ten, doesn't it? it? Was sitting at nine hundred and well, it's that yeah, so, nine yeah, for so, some. So one death, uh, one yeah. fatality of COVID in 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 April, and there mm. was a, a fatality because of blood clotting. So they can see one on one in mm. their face, and that was the the previous death was I think in December of twenty twenty. Mm. So people see that the risk of dying from COVID at the moment. Of course, this is the point about this. It can change very quickly. Uh, they look at that and say, well, gee, you know, maybe I'm better off waiting. Will the outbreak in Victoria, I think, you know, will that sure. spur some people to think, uh, I actually, this it will. is possible? Oh, you've seen yeah. that overseas. So yeah. so, so as as the case numbers go up, you see people wanting to get vaccinated. That is the, the, I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen in Australia yeah. because then people say, well, gosh, the risk now of getting COVID is much higher than it was, therefore I'll go and get vaccinated. And you measure that against the clotting risk, for example, which is probably overstated in many people's minds anyway, but you measure that risk then of the possibility sure. of getting the virus. And that's a very reasonable sort of a risk-benefit risk trade-off that people are doing in their heads. They and don't people need me forget, to people forget also that if you get COVID – you have a higher risk of a blood clot than you exactly. do if you get the vaccine. Well, it's also worth highlighting too when it comes to COVID. So the idea is you get COVID, you recover, or you don't recover. Well, actually, there's not just a, a binary here. Mm. There's people who get COVID and they don't fully recover. 
you know, 10% of the people who got symptoms in the UK, so a lot of people didn't get symptoms, but but people who got symptoms are having some sort of long-term health consequences yeah. from that. Yeah, and I think we're still unpacking exactly what that, that is, you know, yeah. in terms of, uh, yeah. And I think um, I think you're right. I don't know. That the, it depends on how quickly they put the Melbourne outbreak out. Mm. But um, I think we should be looking at places like Taiwan. Taiwan was the poster child with New mm. Zealand in terms of, um, you know, basically very, well, very little COVID, about the same size as Australia population-wise. And now they've got quite a severe outbreak. And they just happened. finished, uh, going back to what we were discussing right at the start, they just finished, I think, a, a sort of a pandemic drill exercise, hadn't they, just before COVID hit. So they were, you know, so, it was very so front of mind. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, what, why, why has it occurred? Maybe it's com- some complacency. I, I'm not, I haven't really looked at what the vaccination rates are there, but I think we've got really good exemplars that this could happen. Mm. Maybe we do need, I, I don't want to wish on Melbourne a bad outbreak, obviously, no. No. Um, but we need to create that that um, sense of urgency. People just don't have it. And they've got a lot of, you know, there's a lot of mythology about the, about this blood clot piece. Yes, it's somebody you die, um, a, a person, as I understand it, with quite a complex medical history. But generally speaking, since the, the awareness has been there and people have been told if you've got any symptoms, see your doctor, the last few cases we've had have, have had a very good prognosis. So that hasn't really been explained properly. There's also people saying, oh, well, I've got this condition, autoimmune disease, this means I can't have the vaccine. They're making a lot of these things up because, again, the messaging's got confused mm. and they're only hearing part of it, I think, at the moment. So, Yeah, so I, I just want to go back to this point, uh, and uh, Tracy made it very clearly, that we need to have a vaccination strategy that is connected to our international border, okay, in the terms of uh, removing restrictions or relaxing restrictions. Part of what happened in Taiwan is they started to relax restrictions on, the, on their border, okay? So that's certainly complacency. So the point I'm making and the point that others have made before me, okay, if we want to get that holy grail of herd immunity, all of us, whether we've had AstraZeneca or not, <laughs> need to get revaccinated with mRNA, either it's Moderna or the Pfizer's the only shop in, in town at the moment, to, before we actually open up our borders. And if we don't do that, then millions of Australians are going to be vulnerable to these variants of concern. So that, that's the, the key the, message the, the, the that I'm making. The best outcome here is for as many people as possible to take up AstraZeneca in the uh, uh, even before we get those extra ten million Pfizer doses and whatever else is, I think we've ordered another twenty after that. Um, the the best outcome is for maximum take up of the available vaccines at the moment, which is predominantly AstraZeneca. Are you concerned that in talking up and talking about these as if they are two classes and so forth that 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 has that the message people take from that is that AstraZeneca is second rate and you ought to just well, wait. but but just go back to the key messaging. So back in January and in February, we said you're going to get safe and effective vaccines, as safe as possible and as effective as possible. Now we know, um, yes. Extradenisca is safe, okay, but it does have, uh, as do many vaccines, there are some potential complications. We should have been upfront and said, look, the, 
and they are one in a hundred thousand for the, the for the for the there's a little bit more than that you know, in the context of a younger population. But nevertheless, the blood clot exists across all age groups. Be upfront about that. It's not as effective as mRNA. We know that we've got the evidence in front of us. We've known it for some time, and it's being supported by additional evidence. But just be upfront and say yes. If you you should get AstraZeneca if uh, because we could have an outbreak here in Australia, and it will give you some protection. Absolutely, it will give you very good protection. In fact, well, not not as not the ninety five percent of any symptoms that Pfizer yeah. does. It's it's somewhere varies between somewhere sixty five to eighty. Exactly, but don't but However, don't, in don't terms s- of severe COVID and you know death, yeah. um, I, I, my understanding was they're very similar actually, in, in that the rate is very close to one hundred percent for both. Now, no, that, well, anyway, this is not it, but I, yeah. I, I, it, it's so, still so high, it's still, but it's, it's I, not hundred percent. I'm concerned personally that we are putting people off AstraZeneca when it is a safe and effective vaccine. Well, I don't want to put people off AstraZeneca. What I want to do is to connect the vaccination strategy to the border strategy. That's what I want. And I want to make sure that all Australians have the opportunity to have an mRNA before we open up the borders. Because if we don't do that, we are going to have an epidemic in this country. But I think fully open up the borders. Fully, yeah. And that means just, you know, you can come in without quarantine. But I think there is a halfway point that we can do before we do that. Well, we, we've started with New Zealand with the travel bubble, so careful consideration needs to be done about that. As I pointed out, it, Taiwan but, but, went down yeah. a particular path, which mm. I think has been unfortunate. So if we do it carefully and we do it with full full consideration, yes. But we understand there's a political economy here as well. It's not just the public health people talking. We have uh, billionaires from the United Kingdom telling us to get our act together. Okay, we have this is C- Richard Branson. <laughs> <laughs> we have CEOs from, from from airline companies telling us that we should get our act together and indeed uh, face the consequences. Um, so, so there is clearly a lot of pressure from certain parts of the business community to open up as quickly as possible. And I well, that to... used to be the government's tune. I mean, they used to say that's what Scott Morrison was saying through most of 2020 was that we had to find a way of keeping the economy alive, sure. of, of balancing the and risk we did. of we, we actually did it. We yeah. actually did it because we kept the borders restricted. But well, like, the, the, saying, the federal government had most of the effective restrictions, apart from the border, correct. the international border close, had most of the other successful measures foisted on it. And sure, it, with a national cabinet. The point I'm making here, the business community- Well, by states actually acting parochially. But, but, but just, exactly. just go back. Effectively. But just go back. So this is an important issue, okay? So the, about the borders opening, if it's done through public health advice and careful consideration, then I'm fine with that and I agree with Tracy. But if it's done because someone picks up the phone and speaks to the Prime Minister and because they're a billionaire or whoever they are, then I am concerned by that because they have particular interests, not the national interest at stake. So I expect the Prime Minister, and so far so good in the context of border restrictions, to be to be, to be clear that they're not going to be open until we have the appropriate public health advice. And I think that's got well, to be I'm, part I'm, of it. I'm, I'm concerned. I'm interested in your view on this, Tracy. I'm concerned that the government's swung too far the other way. I mean, it's like the Prime Minister's taken the lesson, the political lesson of all of these state leaders, state and territory leaders who've all, you know, there's been five elections in this country. And of course, there was a by-election on the weekend as well, uh, where we saw the incumbent party retained as well, where incumbents are, are, are being uh, you know, very strongly endorsed, uh, and mostly they're being that that follows you know being associated with very strong protective uh, attitudes that they've taken to the virus. And the prime minister was antithetical to that for for most of 2020, but seems to have really now imbibed that that message. And 
that's why we have this. Uh, we're not opening the border, and you know he he jumped all over Jane Herdlicker from uh, from Virgin when she actually talked about living with the virus and the possibility that you know some people will die just like they do of the flu. Um, and now we have this. Now we have this kind of political frame. It seems to almost. And when I say political, I mean political electoral frame, given there is an election looming within the next 12 months, probably going to happen later this year, I would say. Yeah, look, I think I, I, that's what my feeling as well. I think we've um, there are a lot of different factors at play. One is, you know, let's not forget the jurisdictions drove our actual policy. Hmm. Our policy was not an elimination strategy or a strategy. No. It was actually, you know, suppression, aggressive suppression, I think they called it. Eventually, um, yeah. I mean, that, that, that was that was sort initially, of let's just elimination. the curve. Yeah. But the states and why did they want to flatten the curve? They wanted to flatten the curve to give our hospitals exactly. a chance to have the capacity to manage a certain number of cases. That Correct. was the. That, I mean, people forget yeah. this, but that was the argument. That was we a, need to exactly make sure we don't overwhelm our Zealand, health systems. New Zealand went for elimination. Mm-hmm. We were aggressive suppression, mm-hmm. exactly to flatten the curve. But then the states, particularly Western Australia, Queensland, yeah, elect, you know, both facing both elections, facing yeah. elections, went for an elimination strategy, and the federal government and other states had to basically follow along. That's what we got, why we got unnecessary lockdowns mm. this year still, mm. um, when it was a time to take a moderated approach like they are in Melbourne, which is start wearing masks and, you know, increase social distancing and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think that does seem to be a play to some extent. I also um, anecdotally heard, and you can probably tell me better than this, that, you know, in terms of the economy, tourism is really booming in Australia because no one's spending their money overseas. We also have a lot of new taxpayers in Australia that have come back from overseas um, while the borders have been closed. So, um, you know, from an economic... The ones who are lucky enough. And let's not forget the people who aren't. Absolutely. Because there are some people who are listening to this podcast and being pretty bloody pissed off. No, absolutely. But there have been a lot that have come back. So is there a real economic imperative to open the borders at the moment. Yeah. Plus there's the political, you know, visibility when, you know, 75% or whatever it is of saying they're quite happy for the borders to remain closed. I think that's the, the, I think that's the situation we're in rather than, you know, pressure coming from elsewhere. But, you know, it, it is complex. But, you know, let's go back to public now. health. Let's go back to this having a strategy that links those two things, um, doing it all based on risk. But, you know, politics and is an, a whole other factor that, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I want to go back to that point. I keep on re-emphasizing it. Yeah, we need to have that strategy, the vaccination strategy and the border strategy. So I would be saying, you know, at least aim for 85% people to be vaccinated with mRNA before we fully open up the border. That would be a reasonable objective and goal. Uh, for us to achieve as a nation. That, I think, needs to be part of the mix that we're talking and about. Could, and, and do you think that could be done on the basis of what we know in terms of the uh, projections for acquisition of uh, Pfizer and, well, certainly, and yeah, certainly, that, cert- that it could cert- be done this cert- year? Cert- certainly with the, the announcements that were made in the last few days. The, so we're supposed to be having you know so many millions of doses uh, a week uh, from October. Um, it's certainly possible with max vaccination clinics. Yes, it's certainly possible how, how to be able that- to do that in, in early 2022. I don't believe it's possible before the end of this year, but I think in the first quarter of 2022, I think it's 
perfectly possible if the supply is coming in for Pfizer or Moderna or Novavax that for us to be able to do that. But we'll need the mass vaccination clinics. We'll need to get and, all and people together. And I think together. we'll also need Plan B, Plan C in yeah. case there are disruptions. But again, make that transparent to people yes. so they know what's going on. Well, why yeah. are we so infuriatingly slow in this country? I mean, seriously, I, I, I was watching Norman Swan do a report for 7.30 last night uh, about the advertising campaign and a number of other, other things. And, and I think he finished off, and I'm not wanting to misrepresent him, but he wasn't, you know, his, his fault, but he, he sort of finished off talking about the possibility of getting a, um, you know, a, a, a really sophisticated public relations campaign going and what we need to do in or what it needs to include. And I thought, why are we sitting here coming to the middle of 2021? Other countries have, have, have rolled out their vaccine program with haste. They've rolled out their public relations campaigns to support it with great haste. We are procedurally very, you know, we're bogged down, let's face it. I mean, this is everything happens slowly, including the acquisition of the vaccines. It's hard to know. I mean, obviously, we didn't have the urgency that other countries had, you know, last mm. year, it was mm. particularly over, you know, from November onwards when we had that big um, wave in the Northern Hemisphere, which would explain why we didn't go for an emergency clearance through TGA, for instance. Mm. We, we took the, the normal approach. But in terms of how it's being run out, I mean, part of it, I think there's the jurisdictional versus you know, the federal versus state sort of um, divide to some mm, degree yeah. and, and how do you manage that is quite complex. Um, but, and I again, I do see signs. Like I think last week we uh, there were about half a million doses. That was a record for a week. So we mm. are cranking up. More centres are opening. But why aren't we better organised? I don't know. The AstraZeneca clotting thing, I think, threw everything for a loop. But again, there should have been um, plans and scenarios in place for that. Uh, so I don't it, know. Yeah. I just I think that politics. I think again, last year, love the fact that um, that you know the politicians listened to the doctors. Of course, being a doctor, mm. um, but I'm seeing less and less of that. I, I think yeah. some of the decisions being made, for instance, with the lockdowns, were, were political decisions, not public health decisions. Yeah, and I think that has has meant has meant that. Um, you know, there's it's become unnecessary complex. It's almost like you need to stand back and and look at a more simple approach to deliver this. Well, look, I think that's probably we've covered a fair bit here. Thank you so much for being with us on Democracy Sausage again. Thanks, Tracy Smart. Thank you, and thank you, Quentin Grafton, once again for being on. It's uh, been, as I say, a really interesting discussion. There's no doubt going to be many many more discussions like this because uh, you know that. As I say, things are sort of a bit more glacial than perhaps they need to be and we'll be discussing it, regrettably, for some time to come. But let's hope that uh, people are taking the opportunity to get vaccinated. That's what we need people to do. I certainly have had my vaccination, at least one shot. Looking forward to another and um, we'll see how we go. Thank you, Mark. Thanks a lot. That's it for Democracy Sausage this week. Thanks for being with us. Always enjoy your feedback, of course. You can get to us on Twitter at APPS at Apps Policy Forum. Also, if you put Policy Forum Pod into your search engine, uh, you can find us on the Facebook page there. So uh, by all means, uh, come back to us with any feedback, any suggestions. We're always eager for that. And until next week, uh, that's it from Democracy Sausage. Bye for now.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 